In the past week, Iraqi forces moved deeper into IS-held Ramadi. President Mohamedou Buhari of Nigeria declared that his country has technically won the war against Boko Haram, and Merkel and Hollande offered David Cameron a watered-down version of the EU reform he wants. It's December the 26th, 2015, and you're listening to the Oxford International Relations Society podcast, Beacon. Welcome to The Beacon. I'm your host, Will Yeldon. Our focus this week is the recent violence in Israel and the West Bank. On Thursday, Israeli authorities declared three Palestinian assailants were killed as they carried out or tried to carry out stabbing or car ramming attacks against Israeli security personnel, and a fourth Palestinian was killed in clashes with Israeli troops. Two Israeli security guards and a soldier were wounded. These recent attacks are a perpetuation of a violent trend which has emerged since mid-September and shows no signs of abating. Since September, Palestinian attacks, mostly stabbings and shootings, have killed 20 Israelis, whilst Israeli fire has killed 124 Palestinians, among them 85 said by Israel to be attackers. The rest were killed in clashes with Israeli forces. Israel accuses the Palestinian Authority of inciting the violence. In response, the PA has commented that it is simply the result of nearly 50 years of military occupation. The violence has, in some parts, been triggered by recent visits by Jewish groups to the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in occupied East Jerusalem coupled with restrictions on Palestinian access to the mosque. Frustration is also mounting as Israel continues to build Jewish-only settlements throughout the West Bank. However, these events also pose a threat to the leadership of the Palestinian Authority, which now appears trapped in a catch-22 situation over the continuing violence, which they neither lead nor feel fully able to condone or disavow. What are the origins of this spate of attacks? Are the current punitive tactics employed by Israeli security forces really the best way of combating them? And what implications do recent events have upon the current viability of the two-state solution? To examine these questions in more detail, I spoke to Yifta Kuriel, head spokesperson at the Israeli embassy. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for going to speak, Yifta. Um, if we could first focus on some of the recent tensions surrounding the Temple Mount and Al-Aqsa Mosque. Post-praising and encouraging attacks on Israelis have appeared on YouTube and Facebook with Twitter hashtags appearing. Experts have also noticed a marked increase in anti-Arab rhetoric on Israeli social media sites. Um, to what extent do you think the current tensions are being driven by divisive social media? I think um, they are being driven. Social media is, um, is giving us a very problematic contribution, let's say, to the violence. I think that on the Palestinian side, at least, the incitement is coming not just from social media, but from the leadership. Because when, when President Abbas uh, recently said that he welcomes the blood spilled for Al-Aqsa, uh, that actually encourages young people to go out and commit, commit atrocities. So this is definitely, definitely a problem that we are, we are dealing with. It happens on the Israeli side as well, but I think the difference is that um, on the Palestinian side, this is being supported sometimes very openly by uh, Palestinian leadership. And with the peace talks between the Palestinian, Palestinian leadership and the Israeli um, leadership essentially stalled for the moment, is there a danger that these, at the moment, possibly sporadic attacks could become part of a more cohesive third intifada? Sure, there is a danger. We are trying to avoid it by any means possible. I think leaders on both sides have an interest not to escalate uh, and not to, to cause more bloodshed. But we have to remember, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, he was here in London two months ago, called directly on um, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to resume talks immediately. He said anywhere, anytime, no preconditions. And that has so far not happened, despite 
pressure to resume though. Last month, the Israeli government ordered an intensification of punitive home demolitions in response to the wave of stabbing and shooting attacks. Um, it says the controversial policy acts as a deterrent, but many critics actually say that the main victims of such demolitions are the relatives that are forced to pay for another person's actions. Is this tactic really a viable counter-terrorism measure? Uh, I think it is. It's a tactic that is, um, is uh, seen as problematic also within Israel among different circles. And this tactic is constantly under Supreme Court um, uh, jurisdiction. The Supreme Court has cancelled some of the demolitions, has let others go ahead. I think there's no easy way to deal with terrorists that are coming out of, of, um, of communities and going out and killing people. And we see the same thing happening now um, in France, post the attacks in Paris. Measures that uh, in the past were not thought of are now being implemented because dealing with terror coming from a civilian population is a big challenge and Israel is grappling with that as well. Let's turn to the, the relationship between Israel and the U.S. Um, Netanyahu recently visited the U.S. Uh, and had extensive talks with President Obama. One of the main focus of the talks was the expansion of the 10-year, $30 billion defense agreement um, agreed under President Bush. How far have these more, more recent talks helped to heal diplomatic tension between the U.S. and Israel um, over the Iran agreement in particular? Well, I, I'm not going to go into specifically the talks on the, on the defense issue, but I will say, generally speaking, much has been made in the media and elsewhere about the disagreement um, between Israel and the U.S. over the Iran nuclear deal. And that disagreement is, is a fundamental one. Nevertheless, it's a disagreement among friends. And at no point in, over the past year or two um, has that friendship you know, been significantly hurt over that disagreement. So we have to put it in that perspective. And in your mind, can Israel live with a nuclear Iran? I think the question we should be asking is can the world live with the nuclear Iran because this is not just about Israel. If anything, Israel um, uh, is one of the countries that are most able to defend themselves from uh, ballistic attacks. It has one of the world's most advanced anti-missile systems that is constantly being upgraded. The question is what a nuclear military Iran will do to the Middle East, will do to the region. We see today the um, very detrimental uh, actions that Iran is taking, propping up the Assad regime in Syria, being involved in Yemen and in Lebanon. And we have to ask ourselves, and the world and the Middle East certainly is asking this question, um, what effect will uh, a nuclear Iran have on those already very, very problematic activities? Um, Ruben Pedersel, uh, a scholar, recently argued in an Intelligence Square debate that the question was not so much, can Israel live with a nuclear arm, but does it have any other choice? He argued that Israel's second strike capability would enable it to exist in a state of deterrence with a nuclear Iran. Do you agree with his viewpoint at all? Again, I, I, you know, I think that Israel will continue to, to thrive regardless. But I think that a nuclear Iran in the Middle East will be um, a horrible situation for the world and specifically for countries in the Middle East. There's no doubt about that. Do you have any faith in the um, snapback sanctions that are touted as a defense of the agreement well, at all. you know, the, the IAEA published its uh, final report on the, what we call the PMD, the Possible Military Dimensions on the Iranian program. And I think one of the most, um, most of the experts on the nuclear issue, what they said was, we can now remove the P from the PMD. So it's no longer the possible military dimensions, but actually the military dimensions. That has been now, you know, shown very clearly. Um, last week, Iran carried out um, a test 
of uh, yet another long-range missile yeah. in contravention to UN Security Council resolution. This is before you know sanctions have even been removed, mm. and the de the deal you know the ink is still wet on the deal itself. So do I have faith in in the deal? I guess um, it's very problematic. Let's touch a look at the Israel's relationship with the EU. I mean, one of the most recent occurrences has been. Uh, the EU moving to ban products produced in the West Bank from bearing the label made in Israel. Um, the Obama administration said it doesn't consider the new European Union ruling outlawing made in Israel tags on goods as a boycott of the Jewish state, only a technical guideline for consumers, but there's been heavily divisive within Israel itself. What's your response to this move? The move, we have to put that move into perspective as well, in the sense that uh, trade relations between Israel and the EU, Israel and the UK specifically, are growing tremendously, all the time. I don't think that this move will have any real effect on trade. Nevertheless, it's a move that sends um, a bad message to, to, to Israel and to the Palestinians. It's a move that basically promotes those elements that want to isolate Israel, that want to um, boycott Israel. And it's a move that sends a message to the Palestinians that there are other ways of achieving um, progress, not via the negotiating table. And this is an illusion, because at the end of the day, um, these measures are not going to achieve peace. They are not going to promote negotiation. And so our position is we must push both sides to come to the negotiating table and not you know, do these extra negotiation um, kind of pressures, uh, especially not on Israel, which, which is the side that is now pushing for negotiations. Well, let's look at the even broader perspective of the UN. So um, US ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power, um, recently drew attention to a potential bias between Israel and the United Nations. She says that the United States will always stay Israel's partner and noted that the US efforts against attempts to delegitimize Israel at the UN um, and said that the UN was a place where Israel hasn't always been treated fairly. To what extent do you think that Israel is ostracized within the United Nations and the international community? Well, again, with the UN, there have been major advances. We are no longer at the time of the Arab boycott in the 80s when um, Zionism was considered racism, and we, we've passed those days. Nevertheless, still today, the UN um, Human Rights Council in Geneva has passed more resolutions against Israel than the entire world combined. We have countries like Iran and North Korea um, sitting on um, you know, committees deciding on human rights issues. And in, in that sense, I think Israel still doesn't feel that the UN is the most friendly place for it, certainly. If we have a look at its two-state solution and the context surrounding it, at the recent Haaretz Q policy conference in the opening session in New York, PLO um, Organization Secretary General Saeb Erkat made an impassioned plea for Israel not to give up on the two-state solution in favor of apartheid. Um, he said it wasn't for lack of trying. He then said, I want to congratulate Netanyahu for destroying a culture of negotiations, a culture of dialogue, a culture of peace. Is this a fair assessment of Netanyahu's approach to negotiation? Well, actually, if you look at the facts on the ground, um, Netanyahu, in order to restart the latest round of negotiations with uh, Mahmoud Abbas within the um, Kerry framework, actually released um, prisoners, Palestinian prisoners who murdered Israelis. He froze the settlements. He was the only prime minister ever to free settlements for almost a year in order to renew negotiations. Um, the end of those negotiations was basically that um, Palestinian President Abbas rejected the framework and basically said he had to think about it and never gave an answer. And so I think to 
call Netanyahu a rejectionist is simply not true. And regardless of Netanyahu, if we look at the past decade, there have been attempts at negotiations, both with Mahmoud Abbas uh, and Olmert, and before that, um, Barak, a leftist prime minister, with Arafat. Uh, all those negotiations have ended in a Palestinian refusal to accept um, proposals that were endorsed by the U.S. and the Quartet. So this, this, these are the facts about the current decade of negotiations that unfortunately have not got us to the place where we want to be. Um, looking back to some of the controversial comments Netanyahu made in around elections in March, he said the right-wing government is in danger, Arab voters are heading to the polling stations in droves, and the Zionist Union head, Isaac Herzog, also slammed Netanyahu for this, saying that he humiliated 20% of Israeli citizens for the sake of his election campaign. Do you think election rhetoric has harmed negotiations? Well, first of all, this issue is an issue, is it an inter inter-Israeli issue. It's got nothing to do with the Palestinian Authority or negotiations for peace. This statement was a problematic one for which, for which Netanyahu basically apologized after the elections. Um, re election rhetoric um, is, often, is often something that is um, you know, very heated. This is not an invention of Israel. You can see it here in the UK and other countries as well. But I don't think that this, is, uh, this directly relates to the peace process with the Palestinians. Um, addressing the, the Saban Forum in Washington, D.C. Um, on the 13th of, this, of December, um, Kerry warned of the Palestinian Authority's possible collapse. Is there a danger of this happening? Well, I hope the Palestinian Authority doesn't collapse. The Palestinian Authority has um, many challenges at its door. It's got today basically no control over the Gaza Strip where Hamas mm -hmm. is, is, uh, has won democratically but then has taken over and basically staged a coup in 2005. Hamas also maintains power in the West Bank and is attempting to, to you know, overrun the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority itself is blamed by many Palestinians for corruption and other uh, problems of, uh, of governance. So you know, this is, this is a, a big challenge. I think that Israel, you know, there's only so much Israel can do. We can uh, support and, um, and uh, support the moderate elements, and that is what we want to do, because we obviously need a partner in order to achieve peace. But it's up to the other side to, to create the leadership that can do that. And you spoke earlier about uh, Mahmoud Abbas as the, obviously the PA chairman. What are your opinions on him as a wing negotiator? I mean, unfortunately, the, the facts speak for themselves. Um, he rejected negotiations which were said to be very, very advanced with the centrist Prime Minister Olmert. He now rejected, um, just last year, the Kerry framework, and he is now not uh, basically acceding to Netanyahu's uh, request to renew negotiations immediately. So to call him a willing negotiator right now would not be accurate. Mm. And if we look at U.S. presence or U.S. presence in resolving the situation, Obama's time in office is coming to an end, and we're unlikely to see another push from the U.S. before the end of his, his term. Um, in your mind, how essential is U.S. leadership and orchestration in negotiating a settlement? I think in the past, U.S. leadership has been critical uh, in this respect, and uh, I think whichever uh, leadership um, comes comes to is elected in the United States, uh, that leadership will be interested in the Middle East and will be interested in the peace process. But again, at the end of the day, and I think Kerry has said it himself uh, just recently, you know, no matter what uh, what effort the U.S. Um, makes, it's up to the sides sit down and negotiate. And that's what Netanyahu and previous Israeli Prime Ministers have been saying. There's no, there's no escaping that. And if we turn to the divisive subject of Israeli settlements, um, Samantha Power, um, although defending Israel, um, she also strongly criticised Israel for continued settlement growth. 
specifically with regards to Israel, she claimed that continued settlement growth raises questions about Israel's long-term objectives. What are the key reasons for continuing Israeli settlement development? Well, again, we have to remember Israeli settlement. Uh, there have been no new settlements since the uh, 1990s. Now, for many, many years, current settlements are expanded only uh, within settlement blocks. That is to say, areas that it has been agreed already with the Palestinian Authority that are near the Green Line and would remain within Israel proper after an agreement. They are expanded only to accommodate um, growing population needs, not in order to, to expand them uh, indefinitely. And this is a divisive subject within Israel itself, of course. It's not as if it's, a, it's an issue on Israeli consensus. It's an issue that will be um, settled as part of the final agreement with the Palestinians. And it is not, despite the way it is sometimes viewed abroad, it is not the most difficult issue to solve. That should be taken into account, after all. And you mentioned the, the ongoing construction to accommodate population numbers. Um, according, the, according to Peace Now Settlement Watch director, um, Haggit Ofran, uh, construction in Judea Samaria has not been halted, and reports of a new freeze have no factual basis. He told Al Monitor that updated data for the beginning of 2015 actually show a 200% jump in construction when compared to the corresponding period last year. He said there's a lot of building going on. It's a con real construction craze. I mean, obviously, that part of that must be for growing populations, but how do you account for such a large jump? Well, I'm not aware of these figures, and we have to remember the, these groups and these organizations have an agenda of their own, which is legitimate, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what's happening on the ground. And do you consider current development to be illegal due to its transgression of international law? Well, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of issues that are, that are pro problematic and that, that Israel is negotiating with the Palestinians, but those issues will be our part of the solution that we need to find. Okay. And, and finally, um, what do you think, in your mind, is the situation in five years' time? I hope that we find opposite us a Palestinian leadership that is able and willing to negotiate. I hope that this negotiation will be fruitful. I think you see today, still, most Palestinians and most Israelis are in favor of the two-state solution. Palestinians want to, to create their independent state. Israelis want a peaceful Palestinian state next to them. There are many obstacles in the way. There is also a region that is very, very volatile. And Israel on its borders finds itself not only vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, but in Syria and in the Sinai and in, um, in Lebanon, it finds more, more and more terror groups that are replacing uh, what were once at least governable yeah. state, if not uh, even if not ideal ones, and I think that also has an impact on Israel's willingness and capability to to reach an agreement with the Palestinians. And Israel, I think, desperately wants to see a responsible Palestinian actor on the other side that will prevent what happened in 2005 in Gaza, where Israel withdrew and found itself facing a terror group funded by Iran. Um, periodically firing hundreds and thousands of rockets at its civilians. And I think we're going to have to, you know, the Palestinians are going to have to find within, within themselves the leadership um, to, to create um, this um, responsibility that first and foremost will be needed in order to accommodate their, their peaceful state. Well, thank you very much for speaking. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. What are your thoughts? Do get involved by visiting our website, www.oxirsoft.com. 
our Facebook page and Twitter feeds and comment to keep the debate going. Similarly, we are currently accepting short blog articles responding to the week's news and more extended analytical pieces. So for more information, do visit the website or email sir-editor at irsoc.org. Special thanks to our speaker, Yifta Kuriel, for taking the time to speak with us, and also to our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and the University of Kent. Please note that any opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the speakers and host, and do not in any way represent Oxford International Relations Society as a whole. That's the final podcast of 2015, but we're currently working on a great lineup of speakers for the new year, so do tune in. Merry Christmas and have a fantastic new year. Thank <laughs> you.